Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking September reopening, the skills agenda, UCAS data, and sexual harassment on campus. It's all coming home. Where does that guidance leave us? It leaves us with, essentially, an unresolvable conflict. On the one hand, you have to fulfil your statutory duties in health and safety. On the other, you can't refuse access to people who won't wear face masks, other than, obviously, for health reasons, etc. You know, those are legitimate grounds for not wearing it. And... You know, not only is the guidance not particularly useful, but I think in some cases it's actually frankly unhelpful. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and here for our season finale to help us kick about the HE Policy Ball this week are three brilliant guests. In London, it's Richard Brabner, Director of the EPP Foundation. Richard, your highlight of the week. Well, last we're, we're, we're recording this the morning after the night, night before, and um, uh, it was absolutely amazing to watch England. And the f- first time England in my lifetime are going to be in a final. Can't believe it. Um, so, yeah, it's coming home, although I prefer world emotion, but there we go. Uh, and in Birmingham, it's Peter Jamdar, Head of Education Practice at Shakespeare Martin. You, Peter, you have to choose a different one. Well, OK, uh, I, I take that challenge on board and give to you Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest, which took place on the 5th of July uh, and was won by Joey Chestnut, who ate 10,000 hot dogs or something. I don't actually know. But as I couldn't mention England and the triumph of Deep Woke, um, I, I, um, I'm, I'm now stuck with Nathan's hot dog eating contest. <laughs> Tasty. And in London, it's Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitie. Debbie, your highlight of the week. Oh, I mean, how, how, how do we top that moment, really, when we were all sitting on the sofa just watching watching the ball hit the back of the net? It was incredible. Um, OK, my highlight of the week was uh, I took Sammy to the park uh, on uh, on Monday and it briefly didn't rain. A British summer for you. Um, Okay, let's start the week with the big reopening uh, of society and thinking ahead to September. Uh, the government has issued some guidance about how universities should proceed. Uh, it's fairly light touch, it should be said. Um, Richard, what's what's happening here? Yeah, so um, thanks, Mark. So, well, as all wonky listeners know, the government announced its plans for lifting restrictions this week. And in terms of higher education, Gavin Williamson made a statement in Parliament on Tuesday that confirmed restrictions on in-person teaching and compulsory mask wearing on university campuses in England will end. Um, And this was accompanied, as as you mentioned, Mark, by guidance, which says that institutions, and I quote, should not put in place measures which limit the teaching and learning outcome for students or significantly limit the wider activities offered by the HE provider. Well, I just want to say that obviously a couple of months ago when cases were low and the vaccine rollout, rollout was steaming ahead, many of us had obviously hoped that this would, if not be a joyous occasion, be one which brought some form of certainty and clarity to our lives. But, but given this is now happening with rising cases due to the Delta variant, there continues to obviously be a significant amount of uncertainty and nervousness. And clearly questions remain for universities on how they're going to operate in the autumn, given some of their students won't be double jabbed um, 
by then. And, and I'm sure we're obviously going to get into the discussion about all of this and what the sector should do and, and so on and some of the commentary around online learning uh, this week. But for me, what really matters, and I'm sure it does to all wonky listeners, is putting students first. You know, in terms of, the, in my view, in terms of the restrictions, young people have been impacted uh, the most. And they've been absolutely amazing in putting the needs of others over their own needs. And, you know, whatever we decide to do going forward, we really need to put their learning and their experiences first. I mean, it seems to me like this is just the latest of an extremely long line of examples of the government making it all the sector's problem when it comes to, to COVID and, and how to proceed. Am I right, Debbie? I mean, yeah, yeah, you, you could say that. The thing that, um, the thing that think the thing that I think is interesting that changes is is this question about what happens if you arrive at you know so so from from July nineteenth if you have if you are double jabbed you'll no longer be required to self isolate if you are um, either under eighteen or you have had your your two vaccinations so yeah there's this kind of pocket of students who may arrive at university without having had their two vaccinations um, the thing I noticed actually was that was that. Uh, people in that situation will be given a four, a four month kind of grace period in which to get that jab. So I think that's actually quite, you know, the, the kind of the goal here is obviously just to get as, as many, as many jabs in, in arms as possible. And I think it's quite smart to, um, so, you know, to put, put that, put that incentive in place in that way. Although obviously there may be some who are, for whatever reason are unable to receive the jab and then they're going to need kind of special care and attention. Um, but yes, I mean, I think, I think universities have learned by now that, uh, the, you know, government will not be rushing to the rescue other than by sort of issuing guidance to say, you know, you must, you, you must make the, make the best of this as, as you possibly can. And it's, it's become a whole thing about blended learning and, and tuition fees this week in the, in the media, hasn't it? Because I mean, there's, there's long running refrain in, in some parts of the media that says kind of, online learning is is second rate to in-person learning uh or, or to the extent where it should be you know it should be cheaper somehow uh even though that obviously doesn't make any sense for anyone that works in university understands that um it's not cheaper to deliver deliver uh deliver it all online is it smita it, it it definitely isn't mark and um I suppose for me, the the conversation this week and the issuing of the guidance, etc., has really reinforced the rather dispiriting trend um, of not being able to have nuanced conversations about incredibly complex issues. And so if you take the issue around blended learning, um, for years we've been talking about the fact that the future um, is almost inevitably going to involve some more element of use of technology to, to teach and learn because every other area of life has done that. Why wouldn't uh, HE? And of course, what happened last year was a real acceleration of all that. And in some cases, an emergency reaction um, to, to, to that, not necessarily a planned one. But underpinning it was this overarching trend. So to suddenly say, well, you, you, you know, um, we must go back to face-to-face. You mustn't be limiting any um, face-to-face access. Does present blended as a kind of, you know, second rate option, second rate and therefore cheaper. And none of that is actually sensible or true. And we should be able to have a much more nuanced conversation. But I could go on, you know, the guidance raises all sorts of issues where we should be having, um, you know, nuanced conversations, which are not permissible, it seems, anymore. I think, the, I think the really tricky thing for universities here is making that really helpful distinction, if it is possible, uh, for students between the things that might be done because of COVID as a way of reducing transmission and, and kind of, in a sense of, you know, cutting your coat to suit your cloth, and the things that might be done for pedagogical reasons because it actually leads to a better learning experience and better, better outcomes for students. And I think they're kind of the, the, the kind of, we're in the sort of worst possible world of universities have been thinking really hard and carefully about what this next normal looks like, what this kind of new blended looks like, um, and, and how to kind of use technology 
opportunity to enhance the learning experience, but it's coming across as if sort of saying this is our second rate offer. The, you know, students are desperate to be told the experience will be full and enriching this year because you know they've they, you know they've they've really struggled in the last sixteen months. So it's um it's really it's it's part it's partly a comms job, but it's also partly it's just partly a sequencing job about what can be what you know what. You know, not, not, not saying that, you know, from September, we will be rolling out this marvelous new blended learning environment, because as much as that might be the hope, uh, student, what students will hear is, uh, we, you know, you're, you're getting something that is second rate because of COVID. So that's got to be really, really finessed, I think. Can I just, just come in from Debbie's point there? Uh, I completely agree in the sense that clearly there's been a lot of sort of half informed comment this week around uh, the news from Manchester, the lectures are going to be online and, and so on, um, and, and wider universities and what they're going to do next year. But, um, you know, our Student Futures Commission, which um, I'm sure many listeners know about, that, that launched in May. When we launched, we obviously ran some polling that um, Sybil platform from GTI did for us. Over 2,000 students and so on responded. And they we found that obviously uh, face-to-face teaching is the priority but only 15% of students don't want any online delivery next year and I think what's really key is the balance you know they want online to complement face-to-face not face-to-face to complement online so I think students will understandably be upset if the balance is tilted too far towards online but will support changes if the balance is right and to me this you know as Debbie mentioned this is as much about a communications issue and it's really uh, you know universities will want to be clear as much as possible about the face-to-face contact the students are going to have and articulating what that balance is going to be. And it, and it sort of it continues to be a problem as well, doesn't it? That we we, we talk about face to face and online as if they were different things, because of course it, during the pandemic they have been. Um, and one of the kind of key kind of I think points that I took away from discussions at Monkfest was the sort of saying we don't really know what blended means in the context of being allowed to meet face to face. Because you know when we talk about technology enabled learning, we're often talking about groups of students sitting in a room but using devices and using technology, or taking those conversations online but then bringing them back into the classroom. So it's you know this kind of um, the sort of idea that there's a sort of spectrum of you know from face-to-face to online is, is, I guess, one way of conceiving of it, but I think there are others that are probably more um, pedagogically exciting, should we say. Mark, can I just move the conversation sort of slightly beyond the narrow issue of blended learning to the wider issue of the status of this guidance um, and how it com- how it fits with uh, universities' other rights and duties? So the two I'm particularly interested in here are... Um, the idea, which is stated in the guidance, that institutions are autonomous and therefore are free to make decisions about how they choose to run their organisations. If you don't have autonomy to do that, it's a flipping feeble form of autonomy. Um, and secondly, of course, duties such as health and safety law. Um, and I think we're going to see some sort of pinch points. Um, so, for example, the guidance says uh, no student must be denied access to learning because of either their preparedness or otherwise to wear a face mask, face covering. Um And if an institution decides that in their local context, in the rooms that they've got and the capacity to ventilate, etc., face masks are a prudent health and safety step, where does that guidance leave us? It leaves us with essentially an unresolvable conflict. On the one hand, you have to fulfil your statutory duties in health and safety. On the other, you can't refuse access to people who won't wear face masks, other than obviously for health reasons, etc. You know, those are legitimate grounds for not wearing it. And you know, not only is the guidance not particularly useful, but I think in some cases it's actually, frankly, unhelpful, um, and it and it does just confuse an already complex legal environment. Well, it's, it's about, I mean, the government has sort of long misunderstood or chosen to ignore kind of status of students as as adults, and and they they seem to have this kind of weird other. Uh, weird other status that you know they're, so they're not you know they're not in they're not pupils in school and so they have a different you know, institutions have different responsibilities there but they're also they're not just regular citizens yeah 
absolutely, because ultimately they are, you, you know, you've got institutions that have to make the right decisions for a whole community based on their very particular circumstances. Um, and, and I just... I am rather worried that it's it's become a political point, hasn't it? You are, until the 19th of July, you must wear a face mask. And after the 19th of July, wearing a face mask is sort of tantamount to some form of um, uh, civic failure. Well, surely there is, as I said earlier, room for nuance and room for understanding that in different scenarios, we might have to behave differently. Not according to this guidance, tragically. And it's, it's, it's really a point about flexibility. And, and, and it's so exasperating that masks and other issues have become sort of some form of proxy culture war um this week which i find just ludicrous and it they, you know if if government is going to hand it to universities to deal with they need there needs to be a basis of trust and there needs to be an understanding that in certain contexts in certain different dynamics as smith has just mentioned universities are going to behave in a slightly in a, in a different way depending on the context of the situation they're in and we do need more trust-based government and trust-based governance on, on on these issues. I think I think <laughs> yeah, well said. I think I think on that note as well, kind of going back to that point about putting the student first. I think you know whatever the kind of legal circumstances or, or, or public guidance, you know, lots of students will continue to be nervous, um, and that's sort of something we've seen. A student, you know, students are not by and large gung ho about the risk of catching COVID. They are, you know, a good a good proportion of them are, are and will continue to be nervous um, about the risks that they they might pose to their own relatives if they catch it, about the risks themselves. So. So, you know, you know, whatever whatever the kind of circumstance or you know whatever guidance universities issue, I think we'll we'll need to be quite sensitive to that, even if it's not a, you know even if it doesn't if it's not requirement to wear masks indoors, for example. So it, 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 it again, it'll be a sort of tricky tricky conversation potentially with with the with student bodies who will have quite divergent views themselves on uh, on how, how how things should be conducted moving forward. I should say that most of this conversation so far has been about England and you can find links in the show notes for uh, discussion and analysis about what's going on in Wales and Scotland as well. Now, Wonky's Associate Editor David Kernahan is here to talk us through the latest UCAS data. As was widely expected, numbers are up for UCAS applications this year as of the 30th of June deadline, about 4% overall. This is testament to the continued attractiveness of higher education, speaks richly of the lack of other options for young people right now, and adds pressure to a system already strapped for physical capacity. On that, we can see evidence of high tariff providers becoming slightly more selective in offer making. Numbers are up, but not as much as applications. So offer rates are much lower than in previous years. More 18-year-olds from China have applied to UK universities than 18-year-olds from Wales or Northern Ireland. And there's an utterly inexplicable peak of mature student applications from Nigeria. This comes along a significant collapse in applications from Europe. Expected, but still disappointing to see. The summer will not bring a repeat of last year's blazingly good news for access. The numbers of applicants are up for the polar fall quintile one, but the proportion is down. We're not seeing any evidence of 19-year-olds having declined places last year only to apply this year. Reapplication rates are down at that age in the UK. The trend towards studying subjects that lead to careers shown at their most pivotal during the pandemic continues. More people want to become medics, nurses, other allied medical health professionals and teachers. But there's also a growth in social sciences applications. Perhaps people want to know why as well as how. Conversely, there's a small drop in the proportion looking to study business and language at least at the top level, continues their painful decline. I keep coming back to the physical limitations of another bumper year. Do universities have the number of teaching rooms, labs and lecture theatres needed to educate two record-breaking cohorts while keeping them safe from a resurgent pandemic? 
The rash of providers announcing more blended provision for September may have this issue in mind. It's certainly a trend to watch. Now, the skills and post-16 education bill has been making its way through Parliament, and we've been thinking a lot on the site about the skills agenda and universities' role in it. Debbie, talk us through it. Yeah, thanks, Mark. So, since... The skills white paper was released back in January, and, and I suppose you know before that, stretching back to the Ogre Review um, in 2019, um, we've been thinking about some kind of quite key questions. Because I think, well, the first thing to say is that skills, the skills agenda is, you know, is really just the English version of a, a wider trend that we're seeing across the UK, you know, Wales and Scotland. We've seen we've seen movement in, in both those areas this week uh, and globally. So you know, across the world, people are thinking more more lifelong learning, more focus on on skills and and kind of I guess employer relevant uh, sorts of education, more more use of technology. You know, concern about the costs of of having of of, of developing a highly skilled population and, and addressing skills gaps. Um, and different countries are approaching it in different ways. This is just a sort of English flavour. Um, but I think that sort of this this agenda is sort of inextricable from that kind of broader kind of resettling and disruption of 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 education and and the, and the purpose it sort of serves in twenty first century society. So we're looking at the skills agenda in the context of some of those bigger trends um, and asking I, I suppose kind of really how big are these changes? Um, how much is this something that is is kind of new and new and different for universities that that they need to prepare for? What will be the impact on university strategy and and just how disruptive will it actually be? Because of course you've got lots of people saying this is going to be incredibly disruptive for universities. Um, and you know the three-year degree as we know it may kind of may 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 disappear or shrink significantly and others saying yeah this is pretty much business as usual you know maybe we can ramp up some activity here or there so um our, our colleagues at KPMG have kind of set out some of those arguments for us um in terms of the scale of of, of disruption and, and they've done some thinking internally about that um and I've been talking to some university leaders to talk you know to try and understand uh, how nervous they are and, and what sorts of changes they're putting in place um and the other side of this, of course, is about some you know, practical concerns. One is about further and higher education collaborating in places. And we know that this is such a such an important agenda. And, and I think trying to kind of understand what, what might be materially different as a result of this agenda. And we've had um, Anne Milton, uh, former skills minister, writing about that on the site. Um, and likewise, if all, you know, if any of this is going to work and we're going to see people accessing learning throughout their lives and accumulating credit and taking different modules and different providers, we will need to sort out credit transfer. So DK has written a piece about whether that's actually going to be possible and, and, and why, why, we, why, why there might be any reason to believe that having looked at this many, many times in the past, that it'll be any different this time. So it, all of that is on the site and, and, and I commend it to, to our uh, listeners' attention. Hmm. Spita, you, you've long been a champion of further education and, and higher education collaborating more closely. Do, do you think this, is, this presents an opportunity to, to kind of kickstart that agenda? It definitely presents the opportunity, whether it will actually be taken um, or not. I, I don't know. There are, um, you know, in the same way that uh, Debbie's just outlined all the other things that we've talked about for a long time and haven't happened, HEFE collaborations clearly are, are up there. Um, there's a bit of me that feels, however, that it surely cannot be the case that in every other area of life, there has been transformation. And yet HE is going to carry on just the same as it was or almost the same as it was um, decades ago, you, you know, things are going to have to change. And there's something quite exciting about some of the things that I think universities are already thinking about um, in, in terms of how to, you know, what, what could change and the, and the flexibility and the innovation that we might start to see. Um, but I think I go back to a point that Richard made towards the tail end of the last conversation, which is a lot of that would be much more achievable if there was a sense of trust between universities and government and universities were seen as part of the solution um, rather than where I think 
some parts of government see them, which is very much part of the problem. So I think that's the big challenge for universities. How do we move from where we are, where we're seen as the thing that needs fixing, to actually the thing that can fix so many of our skills conundrums? Um, I, I think that's the conversation I'd be very interested in having if I was a sort of senior leader in a university. Well, this, I mean, this is what struck me when, when I sat down with, with various vice chancellors and, you know, and all, you know, from a range of different types of institutions, all really quite invested in, you know, delivering, <laughs> delivering the right skills for their regions and, you know, and, and, you know, meeting the needs of students and, you know, as you, as you would expect, but also extremely kind of open to the skills agenda, very much sort of saying, you know, we're here, we're ready to do this, we're already doing a b- bunch of things in this area. Um, and it seemed to me that actually in many ways, you know, of course, universities are autonomous that, you know, and, and they, you know, particularly where there's great local relationships in place, a very clear strategy and a kind of plan um you know to some extent universities will kind of will, will you know will continue to flourish and and, and do that well in, in you know if, if but, but if government really wants the skills agenda to land and to be impactful and to make you know and to achieve the transformation it seeks it's really missing a trick not working with universities and you know and i think and, and there is this sort of real sense i think of you know it given the given the scale of disruption having lots of individual universities respond to their local regions is is one thing but could you know could government not sort of find the energy to perhaps muster a bit of a kind of let's bring the further and higher education sectors together let's work across the piece let's think about this at the kind of at the kind of you know you know macro level and and really kind of get behind an agenda you know it it just sort of seems sort of it's really frustrating that 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 just isn't what seems to be happening Mm. and i mean richard the um you know if if you cast data this week's anything to go by the the demand for for traditional three-year full-time undergraduate degrees isn't slowing down if anything it's, it's going the opposite way yeah no exactly right and um, this whole sort of debate, wider debate uh, within sort of the current government circles is quite interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, you've got, you know, free marketeers on one hand and you've got this growing scepticism on the right of markets, particularly amongst the sort of, you know, in glib terms, the post-liberals. Um, and I think it's true, isn't it, that, you know, we, over the last few years, particularly in the coalition government, the greater freedoms that were given to sort of 18-year-old school leavers is good for them in, in many respects, but has undermined choices and freedoms for other students, particularly those that are sort of focused around place issues. Um, you know, we don't have a system that fits around the lives of learners and, and students students rooted to place do have less choice as a result of, of policy, as a result of the sort of external environment that we're in. But, you know, I suppose my challenge back to government is, are these changes, are, in terms of these changes, are we getting the balance right or are we shifting too much in the other direction of of control you know are we focused too much on skills that are needed today and not the businesses and skills of the future and what if students don't want to study the subjects that the government seems to think are valuable you know are they going to be somehow shoehorned into things that they don't want to do or don't have aspirations for you know i'm I'm really skeptical mark uh, that, uh, that government knows better than students themselves on on what and where to study and yet there's lots of sort of powerful voices in Whitehall that have the opposite view of that on just one final point in terms of collaboration with FE I think we're all supportive on this podcast of greater collaboration with FE and it makes real sense particularly in the skills agenda at the moment particularly as Debbie has outlined the fact that partnerships between FE and HE you know is is what will unlock um, uh, much of this and there's obviously good examples I used to work at the University of Hertfordshire and they've got great partnerships long-term partnerships with the four uh, colleges in the county there are other examples at Plymouth at Sheffield Hallam and so on but when the Civic University Network surveyed its members you know I was quite surprised uh, this year I was quite surprised only half are developing their civic university agreement with their local FE colleges and I think that's a real indication that while this is you know is a big push in terms of policy when we pitch 
one uh, you know part of tertiary system against the other, it clearly makes collaboration much harder. And, th- and there are you know pressures where um, universities and colleges do feel that they're in competition with each other and they can't really collaborate as effectively as, as they'd like to. I think R- Richard's point about demand is really interesting because that's one of the things that um, I, I know vice chancellors have been putting to government and sort of saying, well, you know, it's only worth putting putting you know. Ha- it's it's only worth offering things if students want them, but you know I do th- I do think that there's there's space for more diversity of 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 options, not just in subject, but in kind of modes of delivery and and ways of accessing. I think that's something that's kind of recognised. You know, you know it might be higher apprenticeships, it might be level four, you know, level four and five plus, but uh, you know, but it'll probably be something different again, and and that's great. But one of the kind of points that um, it was uh, Liz Barnes at, at Staffordshire made and. You know, having having worked very closely in that region and thinking about the you know the, the skills needs, you know, in her experience, part of this is about saying, well, how do we how do we explain the content? You know, so you, you might you might have employers saying, well, we need people very skilled in you know logistics or kind of retail, and and these you know these are not uh, ideas to really excite the imagination, but actually it's kind of so it's breaking you know the thing universities are really good at. And this is why universities are really fundamental to this agenda is breaking down what that means in practice in terms of learning and, and what the kind of wider skills might be and what that what sorts of jobs that might prepare you for beyond the kind of, you know, immediate kind of addressing the immediate skills needs. And that's where those jobs of the future are going to come from. That's where the kind of skills of the future are going to come from. Um, and that's why it's really, you know, this is why university insight is really needed as, as part of this agenda. I mean, that's just one example. I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure there are plenty others. And now it's time for the Hidden History of Higher Education with Mike Ratcliffe. Okay, so I think that one of the meta themes of Wonky is how we get universities and policy stuck together. And yeah, there are whole books published on this now, which are excellent. But the best way you could possibly manage this is for universities to have their own MPs. How much fun would that be? And the good news is, for over 600 years, that's what we had. What happened was, beginning of um, James I's and VI's reign, um, when he came down from Scotland, he wanted to summon a new parliament. And the universities thought this was a great way of having their own MP. So Oxford and Cambridge got themselves organised. Um, they had a discussion with uh, the King's ministers about what the best thing to do would be. So the King's ministers wrote back and said, look, on the whole, we'd be good if you didn't send the Vice-Chancellor, send us two people. And they went up to the university's governing body to decide who the two members of Parliament for the two universities would be. And so over time, what happened was that that got coalesced, so people got to have a vote because they're democratic institutions. And so slowly this became a way of getting to have MPs. And they were just normal MPs after a while. They weren't just representing the university. They just did normal things for the university. So they went through a long dis- line of distinguished people, but not a very distinguished electoral process because it was just down to the governing body. Everyone who had an MA could vote in it. Um, and therefore, there was an awful lot of what you would have you know, effectively called um, vote rigging. Um, King sending delegates, the chancellor of the university would nominate somebody and it was, you know, woe betide the university didn't send them back. So curiously enough, they had um, one of the university chancellors of Cambridge managed to get his nephew appointed as an MP. Uh, he hadn't actually been to Cambridge, so they had to quickly make him a member of Trinity College so that he could be the MP for Cambridge. Uh, and everything went off quite happily from there. So this continues. Um, uh, there's a mixture of very... Um, enterprising young men who get picked to do this and sometimes it's safe country gentlemen Uh, and this continues happily until you get to uh, the growth of new universities in the 19th century and so the University of London manages to persuade Parliament it should have an MP too Uh, and so off they go and they they set up a convocation to do that the Scots get university MPs as well um, and therefore there's a, a big development of this work Come the First World War, electoral reform is on everyone's mind. And so there's a parliamentary commission, the Speaker's Commission, that sets out what we should do. And the great thing is that they 
decide to reform the university MPs, and they do two key things. Firstly, they let the combined universities, the new modern universities, have their own MP, and they let women vote in these elections and stand for them, because this is the same uh, piece of legislation that lets women have the, the vote. They have to have a special codicil to allow Oxford and Cambridge uh, graduates, because the women aren't allowed to be graduates yet, but they are allowed to stand in the election and, and vote in the election. But in the Parliamentary Commission, they thought that single transferable votes would be a good idea. So they actually had single transferable votes for MPs for the university constituencies. It was a postal vote. Uh, you got on the register. Um, you're allowed to be on the register of different universities, but you can only vote once in a university constituency. And it was good student union style single transferable votes. And for uh, the period between 1918 and 1948, we had single transferable vote, proportional representation in the UK Parliament, but only for these university constituencies. Now, some of the people were quite distinguished who did this. There was a particularly um, impressive woman who became uh, the MP for the combined universities, Eleanor Rathbone. She did all sorts of reforming things. Uh, but on the whole, there was a mixture between party political people. They weren't too independent. So come the Second World War, the Labour Party comes into power. Uh, they start to implement another Speaker's Commission after that, and they decide to go completely against pluralism. So they drop it. And there's a great exchange in Parliament with Winston Churchill, sounding a bit like Boris Johnson, definitely laying into the Socialist Party for this terrible breach of all this historical precedent of how they'd had these wonderful people who've been MPs uh, for the universities, uh, and it should continue. And Churchill swears that he will bring it back in uh, when he gets back into power. So the Labour Party get rid of it. In the 1950 election, there are no university MPs, but strangely enough, it never gets back on the statute. We do not have university MPs. Plenty of people might think of themselves as a university MP representing a uh, university constituency, but we would have had a separate vote as graduates for our own MPs. Um, uh, an opportunity that no doubt um, we could try and press for in the future. Get that policy decision back into our education. Let's have our own MPs. Right. The lesser spotted universities minister has popped up this week writing to universities with uh, her views on NDAs. Smita, what is all this about? Um, so, as you say, Michelle Donnellan has written to all um, higher education providers uh, about the use of non-disclosure agreements, specifically in sexual harassment cases, um, which she has described as unacceptable and suggested that legislation is forthcoming to prevent their use. Um, now, obviously, the use of NDAs is something that has been the subject of much discussion over recent times. We know that sector agencies such as the Office for the Independent Adjudicator aren't keen on the use of NDAs. Um, and, but, but we know that many universities continue to use them. Um, and I suppose for me, um, th there are two questions that we really need to ask ourselves. The first is, what is the risk that we're trying to guard against by the use of um, confidentiality agreements? And sometimes it feels like a knee-jerk reaction. Nobody's actually thought about risk <laughs> in, in that context. It's just, yes, if we're reaching a settlement, there should be an NDA. Um, and then the second thing is, e even, if that, even if the risk suggests that there is a threat to confidentiality, um, is this agreement going to help? Um, are there better things we could do to actually protect the institution? And I wrote about this probably um, a couple of years ago now for Wonky, um, reread it last night and thought, actually, a lot of that still stands good. You know, if you're confident in the decisions you're making, you need to be able to explain them to people. There's no point hoping they will stay quiet because very little does these days. 
There is one area where I think it's quite interesting to think about confidentiality, though, and we've seen this increasingly, where a complaint of sexual harassment is made, an institutional process is gone through, and in the end, the complaint is not upheld. Um, and then you have the person who was the subject of the complaint kind of putting pressure on the institution to say, well, how are you going to protect me from ongoing discussion and disclosure of these allegations now that you've been through the process and concluded they're not justified? Um, and I think sometimes that's what institutions are trying to um, protect as much as their own reputation, but the interests of people who've been through a process and and you know, the process has concluded that the, the, the allegations are not upheld. And I don't really know what the minister's answer to that is. Uh, you know, how, how do we, given the rights to free speech, etc., of everybody involved in this process, how do we stop continued allegations being repeated once the process has concluded? Because we need finality in some way, don't we, through the, the, the processes to say this is now over and a decision has been reached. That rarely happens. Debbie, is there, is there something peculiar to universities going on here do you think in the, in the use of ndas or is, is this sort of organizational behavior oh i mean well i i, I don't know is the short answer but i can certainly <laughs> in terms you know, i don't i don't know if schools and colleges are, are using them C- certainly the um legislation that michelle donnellan referred to in her letter um the it, it actually is mu- it applies much more broadly than universities so the intent is to reduce the use of ndas in workplace settings um across across a whole range of issues so that might be really and it might be relating to things like whistleblowing as well as sexual harassment so i think i think what i mean what that legislation marks is a is a shift in the kind of public attitude and, and the kind of and uh and, and and general practice around the use of ndas which suggests you know which, which of course universities would be part of i think what's interesting about the letter is is that donnellan says that actually there, there wasn't an intention to include students in that and, and donnellan has signaled that she's going to ask for options as to as to how students might be included in that legislation, which is forthcoming in due course, and, all, and you know, and, and and hopefully will show up at some point, in, you know, in the in the course of, of, of this parliament. But there's also a, there's also I think a, a question about why Michelle Donnellan is writing to universities, and I think oh yes, and definitely, whether that, and whether that's you know whether that because because my, my first I mean and, and I thought oh isn't it great this meet is going to be on the podcast because we can talk about the legality of ministers writing to <laughs> autonomous universities and saying well here's how you should conduct yourself whether or not it's the law, um, and I you know and I think that's completely you know that that it is that was my first thought when I looked at it I thought what is this nonsense. And, <laughs> Uh, but then I read the letter and I thought, hang on a minute, this is a, a female minister who's met with the leaders of Everyone's Invited. And, you know, and anyone who's been on that website, you only have to spend five minutes on there before you're sort of, you know, crying over your keyboard. Because my goodness, the, you know, the, 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 the suffering and the horror that is, that is going on. Um, and the kind of, and, and the steer in the letter to sort of suggest that universities should be, should, should, should look at the, the Ofsted review of, of, of sexual violence and harassment in schools and, um, and adopt that kind of mentality of like, we, we have to assume it's happening. It is so prevalent. We have to assume it's happening, even if it's not being reported and take steps appropriately. And that's very much in line with University UK's position, I think, as well. Um, although I cannot, obviously cannot speak for them. And I do wonder whether this is just an example of a minister sort of saying, well, look, I don't have, I don't have a lever available to me right now. This is the only lever I have. So, so all I can do is urge, um, and 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 you know, and 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 sort of perhaps, perhaps you know, perhaps we might sort of see it in that spirit. <laughs> Although I realise it, it it also it it is also pretty irksome, and I'm and I'm really curious about Smith's view on that. Can I come back on that yeah, then, Mark? Yeah, just quickly. Do, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so I think that's absolutely right, Debbie. That um, you know, my loyally hackles are always raised once secretaries of state or ministers start writing directly to to universities. Um, and in the past, I suppose what would have happened was they would have written to Hefke and Hefke would have produced a circular letter saying, you know, some to it to everybody, and we would have found that less. Um, 
of less questionable in its legality. And it's, I, says, I think it says something about the ongoing role of the OFS in all this. And, you know, why isn't the minister talking to the OFS saying, I really want you to raise these issues? And that's partly because the OFS has sort of set its stall out to say, we're not going to get involved in those um, positive kind of change conversations. That's for providers to do. So it has left a bit of a, a bit of a gap. Uh, but I think the other reason that uh, Michelle Donnellan feels able to do it is because it, th- there's now a well-established pattern of it. You know, we've had Gavin Williamson writing, we've had Damien Hines writing. Um, and so even though this particular, you know, that, that classic legal um, principle of, you know, um, h- hard cases make bad law. Absolutely. In this case, you can see why a minister might want to do this, but it's set against the background of increasing direct correspondence from ministers, which can't be ignored by, you know, which, which institutions feel they can't ignore or process in the same way that they might the range of other guidance they get from other sources. That's yes. the risk. Yes, it's really hard as an institution to know what to do with this. Because yes. you're, n- you're not obliged to act on it, but you're sort of there's a sort of yeah, there's a sort, of, sort of moral pressure. And when it comes from someone in power, that's actually a bit irresponsible, isn't it? Uh, there is that risk that, you know, we get the kind of particular um, interests of ministers driving institutional behaviour rather than a sort of nuanced approach that looks at all the issues that institutions have got to deal with, you know, across in a more objective way. That's my that's my worry about it. And it, is, it feels really harsh to say that when it is a subject that clearly requires attention. And it's very easy to say, well, it doesn't really matter. But, you know, you've got to, you've got to question the, the longer term yeah. trend here. And I certainly wouldn't have sympathy for, you know, if, if, even if Gavin Williamson feels very, very strongly about, about uh, you know, admissions, I, I, wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't have the same sympathy for him if, if, if you know, we're taking, uh, you know, writing to universities on that basis. It, it is because of the issue that I kind of do feel my heartstrings tugged a little. Yes, well, on admissions, he's, the, the, the law actually prevents him from doing that. Although, I mean, they definitely, they stray over the, the boundaries of that plenty of times. They, they do indeed. And um, yeah, as lawyers, we don't allow our heartstrings to get tugged that often, Debbie. But um, yeah, you got it. Uh, absolutely. There are topics that we've just got to say, this is not an appropriate way to deal with. However much it needs dealing with, this is not the way to do it. Uh, Smita, I was struck by what you're saying about kind of where, where these NDAs come from. And it, it almost sort of sounds like a sort of bureaucratic juggernaut it's, or kind of a matter of process. You know, if, if you go through these processes and then an NDA is standard at, at the end of it, um, is is kind of the problem that this is sort of this is sort of an, emerge out of kind of inertia rather than proactive decision making? What, what, and how would you advise a university to tackle that? Um, I, I hate to say this because it feels slightly disloyal to my profession, but I think it comes from um, a narrowly legal interpretation of risk. So I think that you know if you asked a lawyer what's the best way of protecting a the, the sort of confidentiality of a situation, they would obviously say right, yep get somebody to sign up to a confidentiality agreement because that's the legal mechanism to do it. Big question marks about enforceability, big questions about whether they actually change behaviour. I think institutions need to see risk in a broader way, though, because, yes, there's the there's the legal risk that somebody's going to um, reveal to the world that they've been through a difficult case and uh, they don't think the university's handled it. Um, but I think that there's the wider risk of people just seeing it as having something to hide, even when you don't. So I think, as I said in the the blog I wrote, my feeling is you need to be able to explain to people what you have done to deal with this really, really very difficult um, uh, set of scenarios about sexual harassment, um, rather than relying on the ability to to hide it. So I think 
legally that's always going to be something that's recommended but actually in practice it doesn't work so let's find a better way of explaining what universities are doing here just want to pick up what smita said there about risk which i'm you know obviously smita's the legal expert on on this panel um so there's no way i can sort of you know contradict what she says in that, in that respect but um on on risk which i completely agree with is the wider risk to institutions for storing up uh, these issues and clearly what matters is the safeguarding of their students and making sure that they're in a, in a safe environment but we've seen particularly in the school sector in recent weeks and I live in South East London so the three private schools near me um, Dulwich College, Jags and Elaine's have obviously been in the news about a lot of these issues just this week big story about Colchester Grammar School which is one of the in terms of attainment one of the strongest uh, schools in the country uh, but has been given an inadequate Ofsted judgment as a result of um, uh, all of this and and it's because of you know uh, uh, you know students or alumni from those schools um, you know raising their voices and rightly so around the sort of experiences that they've, that they've faced and I think universities if they if they you know rely too heavily on NDAs and things like that they're going to store up trouble because there's going to be you know their alumni and others are going to you know have powerful stories about what's happened to them and and, and we do need to think about risk in a more holistic way um, with putting the, the needs of students and, and, and ensuring that they are supported at the heart of this. So that's about it for this week and this series. Remember to delve deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Monkey Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks to Richard, Smita, Debbie, all our other fabulous guests from across this season, and everyone at Wonky that makes it happen behind the scenes. And until September, stay safe, stay wonky. Until September, stay safe, stay wonky. I'll do that last bit again. And until September, stay safe. Oh, I know. I mean, it's just nonsense. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.